there's one thing that's sure to get the wheels turning, and that's a road trip. They can open new doors in our life, and be the catalyst for change. In this episode, my new friend Janie Denordwall talks about finding creative solutions in her life, why she ended up going on a road trip, and how not fitting in has helped her succeed. I think the hardest feeling I ever get in life is that I don't fit in. And why am I a bit odd and why am I a bit different? And I just need to celebrate the fact that being different is okay. And it's actually being different is better than being the same as everybody else. I'm Anthony Stoker. I design shoes, write letters, and this is The View From A Shoe, where we explore the creative journey. A metaphorical walk, one guest at a time. Janie is a BAFTA-winning short film producer and a recently self-published author and, as she puts it, a satellite from the mothership. We explore her creative journey, the highs and lows of producing short films, cathartic moments on the road and a remarkable idea on the horizon to help people with trauma through songwriting. I began the conversation by asking Janie about her earliest memory of shoes. My earliest memory of shoes is rather a gruesome one. Um, And I am a child of the 60s. So, of course, 60s and early 70s. So I would always uh, wear Clark's shoes, good old Clark's. And I'd always get very excited about, you know, when you go down to the shop and you get your foot measured and you had those, those silver bars that came in to do your width and length and all that. And when I was about five or six, I was running around the garden in my Clark shoes. And I, uh, in the garage, I'd found our old scooter, which had been dismantled by my dad. So it was in bits. It had like the, the, the wheels and then it had like the, the, the the bottom plate and then the handlebars with the big metal thing coming down the middle. And I thought it'd be a good idea to maybe run around the garden with the handlebars, pushing it into the ground as I ran. So I'd run a few feet and push this thing and and just make holes in the ground. And I remember thinking at the time, this, this could be a bit dangerous. And I wonder if this could ever go through my foot, at which stage it did go through my foot. It went through my shoes and straight through my toe. So good old Clark's, you know, it's like thick leather. So I started screaming and bawling and my parents like picked me up going, what? And they couldn't see anything that was wrong with me um, until of course when they took my shoe off. And I'd literally cut my big toe in half straight through my shoes. Ouch. Um, but yeah, that's, that's still my first memory of shoes. And uh, I suppose the Clark shoes saved my foot probably from really chopping my toe off. Did you have to go to a hospital for that? Um, no, I think I just got, you know, old fashioned bandage, a hot cocoa. And then uh, a few years later, because I started, I've got two toenails growing on my big toe now. And uh, the doctor just decided to just pull one off one day to see if that would work. And of course, it didn't work. It was like torture. That's pretty... Um, it is a bit gruesome, isn't it? We don't need to go to hospital. We don't need any um, medical expertise on this. 
Yeah, just one of those fabric plasters will do, you know, because that those fabric plasters seems to mend all in the 70s, didn't they? They were magic. They were magic plasters, yeah. Did creativity play a part in your childhood quite a lot, either with you or with um, around you kind of thing? The creativity in my family came from my mum, definitely. Uh, my dad was a very straight man with no sort of, I think, you know, his, his favourite colour was grey and, you know, we always used to sort of joke about that. But mum was very creative and wasn't allowed to be creative in her life when she was younger because in those days you had to be a secretary or something. So all her, her artistic flair was sort of nipped in the bud. So she expressed her creativity through me and my sister. So we had um, a playroom downstairs and it was just filled with everything that you needed to have fun um, from, you know, crayons and paints and papers to the piano and the guitar and tambourines and clay and, you know, anything we needed just to just to play with, really. And we had puppets. We had, you know, the little recording, you know, press plane record, uh, recorder machines where we'd record uh, radio shows. Five, four, three, two, one, blast off show was the uh, our radio show that we used to put together, me and my sister. So we played a lot in the, in the play in the playroom. Was that a, a, your version of a, a real existing show, or just completely your, your made up show? Just our little made up show, in the same way that our puppets had, you know, their own shows to go with them, and I had a Rupert the Bear, the Pelham puppet. Um, so I had Rupert the Bear and Donald Duck and Sarah had a witch and a dragon. So within those four unusual characters, you know, we'd, we'd have little scripts and we'd play around. And I'd always very much be in my sister's shadow of creativity, actually. Sarah was my sister, my older sister, was the one that would, would be a bit more forceful with the creativity and confident, I suppose, not forceful, but more confident. I was a lot shyer in those days, but I was allowed to, I had the freedom to express myself which is fantastic, actually, because if that had been suppressed then, I don't think I'd have ever had the confidence later in my life to do anything. So as a, as a young child, I've always been encouraged, whatever I did, because I was very quiet, but I was a very happy little child, you know, so anything that I did was always encouraged. So it sounds like you were actually, you were producing your own shows. You were writing the script and you were, you were kind of recording your voices and you were... Yes, but even then, I'd say that my sister was the driving force. I would just watch to see. Um, and I mean, maybe, you know, Sarah was taking the role of writer-director and maybe I was taking the role of producer without any of us really noticing or realising. But yeah, I mean, out of it, we'd put on shows and, you know, we'd invite mum and dad to come down and sit on the sofa. We'd make little tickets and we'd hand them out and well, four of us. And, you know, we'd just create an environment, um, which was just so much fun, you know, very playful. Yeah. Did you carry on doing any of that through through school? In, like, did you take drama or anything like that? No, I hated every minute of school. Um, and uh, thoroughly confused, bewildered by the whole experience, um, was bottom of the class throughout the whole thing, uh, couldn't read out aloud, so I felt really stupid, couldn't really follow the lessons, didn't understand why I was there, and was obedient enough to go to school and not play truant, um, but it didn't, it didn't bring anything out of me at all. It, it was a very sort of, unenlightening experience 
how did you enter the world of producing and films then from when you left school? Um, I mean, I left school with no, hardly any qualifications. Went to Stockport College, had to retake my O-levels, uh, where there I was top of the class. So that sort of showed the difference between the academic levels of my convent and Stockport College, that I was the bottom to the top. Um, so that kind of boosted my confidence a little bit, actually. But again, I was a very shy person and had no vision, no drive, no idea about what I wanted to do. It didn't even dawn on me that I'd, I'd have to think about getting a job or be anyone or do anything. And we had no careers advice at school. And actually, we had one careers evening. And I do remember a producer from Granada coming in to one of the classrooms and talking to all the girls. And, uh, and I, I must have walked in a little bit late. And he was so, he was sitting at the teacher's desk with his legs swinging and all the school, all the girls were sitting around. And he was so confident and so driven. He just terrified me. And I didn't even think that that would ever be a, a path that I would ever follow. I also remember, you know, watching the making of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom when I was about 13 and just seeing these people doing the jobs behind the scenes going, my God, that is extraordinary. People actually do that for a living. Well, of course, I could never do that. So I ignored it. So when I came out of school and college, I was uh, completely floating around, very, very late developer. What, what did you find terrifying about the, the producer guy that came into college? I thought you were going to say he was so inspiring and that's, you thought, ah, this is, this is the kind of role I want to do. And um, so I was quite surprised when he said terrified. Um, yeah, it's funny. I've, I'm not particularly inspired by anybody. I was thinking about this today before, before our chat. And I was thinking, who have been my inspirations? Because you hear it all the time. Somebody hears a piece of music and they go, that's what I'm going to do. Or they see something or meet somebody or go to a talk and, and it defines their path um, or gives them the confidence to, to follow that, that path. I couldn't be more opposite. I've never really met anybody that I felt that I had anything in common with. So I've always felt a little loner, you know, out on my own in this big, bad world, just having to carve my own way, really. I felt like nobody had told me the rules of life. That's what it felt like, actually. That nobody explained to me what it was about. And I think my parents were just happy that I was healthy. The common things that I hear about school days is, is that it doesn't prepare you for life. It doesn't prepare you for what's going on and what's going to happen afterwards in terms of no. dealing with day-to-day -day ups and downs, the stuff that you got to do to, to kind of get on in life. No, and I think it's a really, really fundamental lesson to, to teach people. Um, I think in, in colleges and like film schools, and I mean, this is from my world, film schools and things like this, um, or even um, community centres and places where young people are trying to find their first job, uh, they're being taught soft skills. And soft skills as in um, learn how to smile when you walk in a room, which is actually quite important when you walk into a room if you start working. You know, I don't mean a sitting room or the toilet, you know. <laughs> it's a bit weird if you're <laughs> smiling around every room you walk in on your own. 
but when you start working, going into the work environment, you know, just to understand how to present yourself. And actually, you're probably as nervous as everybody else in the room. As a young girl growing up through my teens and early 20s, I always felt like I was the satellite on the mothership. Your first venture into the world of of film or television, etc., was with Granada Studios, is that right? It wasn't as glamorous as Granada Studios, it was Granada Studios Tour, um, which was <laughs> worlds apart. It, it was the, the Manchester equivalent of Universal Studios in Salford. And yes, they basically just have behind the scenes of Coronation Street that members of the public could walk down. Um, they had a few other areas where people could walk into, like tele-quiz, where there was sort of touchscreen technology where they could answer questions, uh, or they just had shops selling nonsense and tat. That's where I started in Madison's, selling Bet Lynch earrings and Newton and Ridley beer mats from the Rover's Return. And it was there that I met a friend of mine. We started on the same day, and she been to uni or, or poly or whatever and uh, she got a degree and I was like wow a degree and she was looking for work in the media and how was that woo what's the media and it's a really genuine question it just wasn't something I was uh even thinking about you know I've been looking for jobs in shops in the master evening news on a Tuesday and she was reading the Guardian on a Monday so she sort of explained to me what the media was. And I said, well, that sounds rather interesting. Um, and we, and she said, well, I'm going to get my typing skills. And this is something my dad for years had said, get your typing skills. And I was like, no, I'm going to find my way without typing. But of course, my friend said she was going to get her typing skills. I said, well, can I come? So, so my dad was like, yeah, I'll pay. <laughs> so off we went to this crazy typing school where, you had these huge headphones and a big screen in front of you and you had to like press out these letters on a keyboard that had no letters on them to learn how to touch type. I mean, it's old fashioned stuff, isn't it? You know? And uh, so we learned how to touch type on a typewriter. And then from that, we both got jobs on reception. Belinda in a, a, a post-production editing facility, me in this tiny little uh, advertising agency. And that was my first foray into what the media was. And then I moved from the advertising into the post-production house. And it didn't take long to realize, one, I wasn't a very good receptionist. And two, I seemed to be more interested in what had happened before they'd got to the editing stage. So I was asking people, like, what's production? What happens before this bit? And they said, well, that's when you go filming, and that's when you do this. And I was and uh, started contacting a lot of our clients saying, I wouldn't mind working with you guys. And they said, well, you've got to be freelance. You've got to be a production assistant or researcher. And I was like, oh, Lord, what on earth did this mean? Um, and of course, you can't research in those days, really, on Google or Wikipedia. There was nowhere to go. You just had to just make it up. And my parents weren't from the media, so they couldn't guide me at all. They just didn't know what I was talking about. I also realized I started, I think that was then when I started making quite big, drastic decisions that I'd thought about, 
but had no idea what the consequence would be. I just sort of trusted something and I ran with it. Where did you get that sense of trust from in choosing the big decisions? Most people, well, maybe most people, generally shy away from the big decisions. Yeah, and I think that's what makes me a bit different. The big decisions, it just seemed to make sense. It just seemed okay. I didn't, it was like, it's like a three-year-old on a, on a skiing slope. You have no idea how much it's going to hurt when you fall. So you just launch yourself off, don't think about it. And I think I was just very similar in my decision-making, really. But I hadn't thought about what it would be like to go freelance. I didn't really understand what freelance meant either. Ignorance is bliss in so many other areas. I just felt that it would be the right thing to do. And then I set myself up on the enterprise allowance that was the, the conservative incentive back in the day to encourage people off the dole. Uh, so I got £40 a week, got my rent paid for a year, and then I could keep everything that I earned. So I became a freelance production assistant and researcher, and then just sat at the bottom of the stairs in my rented accommodation, going through the phone book, phoning people up, going, hello, I'm a production assistant. (laughs) Have you got any work? So through that, I just got jobs uh, on music videos and doing bits and pieces and, and as a chippy on another show. And you, you named yourself a production assistant. Yes, very proudly. And then found the jobs to match that title. Yeah, my, my, new, my new business card. Yeah. And I only had a couple of clients, really, and they paid me a little bit. And that seemed to be enough to keep me going. I got my £40 and... And every time I did a job, I just felt a little bit more confident. Nobody had taught me how to make uh, shot notes, you know, when you're filming, to make uh, notes of the shots that you're filming, da 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 And I, I was just doing it. People were going, well, well, you're very efficient. And I was like, am I? Am I? So I just didn't realise what skills I had. And I knew that I couldn't really sing and I couldn't dance and I couldn't act and I couldn't do all that sort of stuff that my sister could do or other people could do. I couldn't draw and I couldn't play an instrument. But after a while I started realizing the thing that I had was I could organize. I could make things happen. And actually I assumed everybody could do that. But that was a skill that all those people that I knew that had other skills couldn't do what I did. So that started making me think in a different way, going, well okay, well that maybe that's my thing. Maybe I'm good at communicating with people. Maybe uh, I, I can get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do in the way I talk to them. Maybe this is just about communication and language that I hadn't really realised I had before. Having read your book and kind of projecting forward a little bit, you seem to find creative solutions to everything. There's no barriers. The example of what you're saying there of, well, I'll just call myself a production assistant. Yeah, yeah. People wouldn't normally do that. They'd try and get a job to be that. Yes. Then they would name themselves that once they'd got the job, but you did it the other way around. Yeah. I think you can find a creative solution to get out of anything. You know, you need to be creative in order to think differently. You know, engineers are, different, are creative. Lawyers are creative, medical professionals creative, because they've got to work out a problem and go, well, 
if, if there were only five ways of getting out, then maybe we won't get out. But what if we just did that and then that happened? And maybe that's just a natural skill where some people can draw in 3D and some people can sing, you know, beautiful arias. Uh, it's natural for them. And I think that maybe that's where my dyslexia comes in because I've always seen the solution and I've never seen the, the problem in between. So if I'm confronted with something, um, you know, I'll see the wood and no trees. I'll see the, the end product and just go directly there. I go directly to go. <laughs> I right. collect my 200 pounds <laughs> and, and I'm off again. And people and colleagues have become quite frustrated with me because they need to go through the process of, uh, I go from A to Z, they need to be told B to Y. So we go here, we do this, we do that, we do that, which actually can slow everything down, the process of doing it. Whereas I just go, boom, I know what we're going to do. And they go, how, how do you know that? I don't know, but I feel it's the right thing to do. Which comes back to your, um, the ease with which you make the big decisions. Yes. Uh, I don't really see the barriers in between of, well, what could go wrong? I just think, well, I can see what it looks like if it was right. And I know how to make it right. I'll just go straight over there and then just catapult myself into that position and then carry on going. And then within that, yes, I've got to solve a load of problems and bits and pieces going on. Um, but once you're over there, it's easier to solve the possible solutions are around you rather than having to look over to where the possible solutions might be. Yeah, they're a bit more tangible. And I think if I thought about what I was doing, you know, like if you walk down the street and you know, or you're being filmed or somebody's watching you walk down the street, you're more likely to fall over. I think if you think about what you're doing too much, I think too many intrusive thoughts will come in to slow you down. And I make very considered decisions very quickly, but they are very considered. I don't take risks easily or simply, or um, I take very calculated risks, but I take high risk. And quickly. And quickly, yeah. And I think that's probably why I've, I've ended up achieving different, different goals in many different areas and not just followed the one path to hit the big time. I quite like and need the variety of all sorts of stuff going around to challenge and change and change the conversation, change the scenery, change the outcome uh, in, in whatever I'm doing. What attracted you to short films rather than television or long films, oh, sorry, feature films, I guess? Well, the plan was to move from commercials 30 seconds, into feature films, 90 minutes. But the bridge in between, or the void in between, is quite vast. And it, it, even though it's, it's a similar medium, it's a different world. So they're very separate industries with different financial models, audience models, company models. And producing commercials, I had a production company at that time called Silver Films, you know, would be commissioned to make a commercial, you get 50% up front, you make the ad, you get 50% afterwards, and then you get, you know, in payment, and then you'd move on to the next one. Little contained pockets, which is quite nice. 
making feature films was always, I suppose, the dream of, you know, now I'm, I'm, now I'm a producer and now I have that label. Not label, but that um, now that uh, entity had, had become real life, that I had realized the fact that I could produce. I'm getting a bit bored of doing 30 seconds. So if I'd like to challenge myself further and see if I can find a script and, and take it to market or find a script, raise money, make a film, take it to market and see where that goes. So the plan was always to do feature films, but the stepping stone was short films. And short films are actually such a wonderful world to, to live in. I mean, if you could get paid to make short films, I'd still be doing it now. But short films are an incredibly expensive calling card. Um, but the upside of making a short film is that you work with your chosen team of creatives, your writer, your director, your heads of departments, and you tell the story that you want to tell without anybody else coming in and changing the script or, or tweaking it because you run out of finance or whatever it is. You can tell the story you want to tell and then send it out there. And that's why so many short films are so creative and so different and so cutting edge because they have freedom, creative freedom to uh, tell a story and touch an audience in a different way. And again, by instinct, the only scripts that were really interesting to me or made me stop and think were all social issue stories. Stories about um, society, humans in different, um, with different characters and impact. And I realized that I was a producer that wanted to tell a story that affected an audience, that engaged an audience, that wouldn't leave the cinema and go, forget a pizza. You'd want <laughs> people to come out and go, I don't know if I can cope with that. And then they'll have a discussion about what they've seen. So in the short film world, you know, you can raise money for things like this. And I did it in a quite a different way. And again, broke some rules in how to find short film finance. Um, but of course, moving that into 90 minutes, social issue films are deemed art house. And they're a smaller audience. And it's almost impossible to get funding. I mean, you look at Ken Loach, who is just extraordinary, extraordinary filmmaker. And he'll, you know, he'll struggle to make one or two a year, uh, one a year or one every other year, because it's so difficult finding the funding because you don't, the financiers don't get the money back on it. I was at a, an event that I applied to get onto to teach um, they called us film executives. Um, they, in the UK, the, the British, the Film Council and uh, another couple of production companies came together and wanted to train, or not train, but uh, almost create a magic circle um, for filmmakers to give them the tricks of the trade just to help them along. Because it's quite secretive how you get a film made. And I was on the inaugural session with about 13 of us we had two weeks in the UK and uh, a week out in LA and we had about 
a hundred speakers, extraordinary speakers, from Richard Curtis to, you know, the heads of Universal and casting directors in LA and everybody was amazing. Um, teaching us how to make a film. And there was one meeting we had where it was about finance and the, the, the chap that was leading the talk said, so what is the most important piece of paper in making a film? My hand shot up with excitement to go, oh, 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 me, me, um, it's the script. And he was like, you'd think so, wouldn't you? No. He said, it's the, the piece of paper showing the recruitment window for the investors. Well, wow. And we were all a bit like, oh, that's a bit rough. So, you know, where was that, how that you then, you know, create the passion and excitement to create the film you want because it wasn't about the script and the story and the engagement and the things that kept me going. It was a tick list of the kind of film that's going to make the most amount of money and the return on investment at box office first weekend. It's a rom-com, it's a this, it's a that. I mean, that's being a little bit rough on filmmakers, um, but it certainly put me off. This was before you did the short films that you made or, or just after? That was after. I got on because of the short film, yeah. Right. So I made uh, About a Girl and I think I've made a couple of others and I think because I was, uh, you know, a, a BAFTA winner that it helped me get onto this, this thing, um, this course called Inside Pictures and it's an extraordinary uh, experience. It took six months, you know, and a lot of time that we had to put in and you learned so much which I've now been able to use it my knowledge of this has been able to be transferred in other areas but I suppose it did the opposite of what it was set out to do it turned me off wanting to be a feature film producer right um, because there was a film that I was trying to develop from a book uh, and it was just taking years and years and years and years and years and it was you know seven years in development from book to script and nobody wanted to, to see, or nobody wanted to pick up on the script. And it's, a, it's an unusual story. And you kind of realize, well, this could actually go nowhere. Just thinking about um, your short film that, that you were awarded a BAFTA for. You know, the, the making of that, the financing of that as a, as a short journey in itself, although I'm sure it wasn't short. What were the highs and lows of that journey in terms of having to find creative solutions and yeah so so I just approached it from a different angle so and again my dyslexia is is um not to blame but to be admired for because I just I just saw it in a different way so I knew that uh if I was going to make some short films I'd need to find finance um and I thought well if if I can raise some finance, maybe like £150,000, I could put £50,000 into three films, make three films in a couple of years, and with those filmmakers, make some feature films. I mean, that was the plan. So I start doing some basic research, and I'd read somewhere about tax uh, incentives um, and the um, enterprise investment scheme, and I read it that 
an investor could invest £150,000 and get tax relief from it if it was within the film industry. And I thought, well, I'm here. That's what I, that's the money I'll go for. Great. And I just thought I'd get it. I just thought I'd write somewhere and somebody would get a lovely idea. I then realised I had to find some business angels. So these are people who, they're investors that, you know, a, a business angel doesn't necessarily want a return on investment. I mean, if a business angel is listening to this, they'll go, don't say that. But, you know, they're in for the crack as well. You know, they, they're doing it because they enjoy that, that environment or that life. And of course, they want their money back. Uh, anyway, so I had to find some business angels that I could pitch to. So I went to the Northwest Business Angel Network and had to ask them to see if I could pitch at their events. Again, all this is new to me. Nobody's told me to do this. I've not gone to a talk where someone said, I did this, I did that. I'm making all of this up or carving it all out myself. So I go and meet them and I said, I want to make some short films. Um, and I've decided to sell equity in my company. My company at the time, you know, I'd turned over about a million or something. So it had, it had worth. But I'd also at that time decided not to do any more commercial activity. So it was now worth nothing. But they needed to invest in the company, take equity, and then put money in in order to pay for the production budgets. So I went along to the, the Business Angel Network and they were very sort of, oh dear, sweet, but no. Um, we don't, our investors don't do film, but you are rather sweet. You're very smiley. Uh, so we could, and, and very enthusiastic, um, if not a bit naive. Goes back to the soft skills you were talking about earlier. Goes back to the soft skills, yeah. And um, I walked into that room and smiled. So yes, it does work. <laughs> And uh, they said, well, actually, you know, there's eight pre presentations a day to all the business angels, like, like dragons, but there's 70 of them in a room. Um, and they said, what we could do, we can put you on after the break uh, or before the break or whatever, just to, you know, get everybody going again, because it does get a bit dry. So you're a bit of light relief. You're a bit of fun. If I were you, they said, I'd wear a skirt and uh, stand in front of the podium so at least they can see your legs. And I was like, oh, I mean, this is the 90s where it was quite sort of, you know, this is what you had to put up with, really. Um, but I wore trousers and I stood behind the podium. And, um, but they, I mean, I had to pay to, to present. And they said, yeah, okay, right, I'll do it. And I, I had to put a PowerPoint presentation together. I had to learn what PowerPoint was in the first place. I then needed to write this presentation and ask for, you know, money. And uh, I had never done anything like this in my life. And it, it was absolutely horrifyingly frightening to stand up in a room and be able to talk. You know, I, I never thought I could do that. Um, my dad was at the back of the room and I lost the room instantly as soon as I said, hello, everybody, my name's Jamie de Nordwall. I'm here to talk about a film idea. And they all looked away. And uh, I knew that I wasn't going to get anywhere. And my dad was at the back of the room and he was mouthing to me, smile, smile. So I stopped my presentation and I said, I'm just going to stop it here. Um, my dad is at the back of the room. He's telling me to smile. So 
and I just smiled. They all looked up. I carried on smiling. I said, right, let's start again. And then started again. And I, I had them then. Um, and then from that, I got a bit, one business angel who asked some difficult questions. I told him the truth, that the company was worth zero. He liked that. And he came on board. So I got my first chunk of money. And then someone else put some money in. And then someone else put some money in. And then with that money, I could get match funding from the industry. And then from that, I then got match funding from Fox Search Lab in L.A., and suddenly I raised about £150,000 and made three short films. Wow. So that was an enormous high. I did something that I, I never thought I was able to do, but I did do it. And I pushed myself outside my comfort zone and firmly sat in that panic zone, but realised what's the worst that could happen? You'll dig yourself out somehow. And I dug my way out by telling them all to smile, you know, telling them that I was smiling. You know, it's quite simple. Showing a bit of personality. Yeah, instead of showing a bit of leg. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> and my business angels were amazing. They taught me so much. They taught, they tried to teach me to be less passionate and more reasonable in my business decisions. Um, but I did have to then remind them that this is the creative industry and one has to be passionate about what one is doing. And I needed to balance that from a managing director and someone that had that taken uh, investment from people to then create films that had to have that kind of passion and drive behind them. But then I also realized that producers making short films for directors, um, it's a calling card for directors, not producers. So actually the producer doesn't really get that much out of it unless they continue the relationship with that director. And, you know, these creative relationships are quite fraught sometimes. And even though you can raise the money and get their film made, it doesn't mean to say that they're going to continue with you because once a film has done well, the director will be picked up, the writer might be picked up by another producer going, great, love your BAFTA winning film. Do you want to do this with us? When I'm like, oh, hello, I thought we were going to do something together. And then you're back to square one. So that was a massive learning curve of understanding that um, it wasn't guaranteed making a BAFTA winning film would actually get you to phase two. It's something as a consumer of films and short films and, and you don't often think about that role and yet no. it's so key to kind of bringing everything, everything together. Yeah. It's probably a role that most people don't understand. Totally. It's the question I get asked the most. What does a producer do? What's the difference between a director and a producer? And that's why, you know, nobody really knows the, the, uh, the producers in, of movies. It's all about the director or the stars. Um, but actually, the producer is the only one that you can't fire because it's their project. A director and a writer are for hire and for fire because if, you know, they can be removed because actually it's the producer's, it's the producer's baby. Right. So that's quite an interesting, I mean, I'm sure, you know, certain people would like to argue that with me. And they can do if they want to. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
But it certainly made me realize that my role in all of this was I could make things happen. And if it wasn't for the producer, I mean, it's a definite triangle of a producer, writer, director, and the director and the writer can be one person. Um, and yeah, one person could do all three also. But I mean, you need that director role, a producer role, sorry, in order to actually deliver and then take it out to market and then create the entity around it as well. And I just loved that role. I loved being in that position of, of being there from the, in the beginning of an idea to seeing it on the screen and hearing and seeing people, audiences, reactions is magical. When you come across an idea, a script, or even maybe the seeds of a script, what is it you're looking for? Is it, is it the social aspect or is it a, an element of creativity in one direction or another? What's, what's your kind of, do you have a kind of a list of things that you have in the back of your head that you want? I think it's less of a list because I think if you're doing a tick list, it comes a little bit too clinical. Um, I, I think it's down to the writing. Because at that stage, it can only be at the writing stage that you read it. And if from a, I mean, a short film script is only 10 pages long. And if, if a script at that length can take you on a journey in black and white, uh, and this character that's been created, I mean, for about a girl, there's only one character really, and your feeling from the beginning about her to the end, if, there's a, if there is a story arc of how you feel, you as a reader, you as a producer, and you as an audience member need to be taken on that journey. And so when I read the script and I got to the end, I was actually, I was perched on, um, I was living in Didsbury at the time in Manchester and I had a little bay window. And uh, I was sitting on the, the ledge of the bay window um, and I literally fell off it when I got to the end because it was just such a, a strong ending. And I think it just has to have that physical effect on you to go, this is it. It is pretty um, gobsmacking. Yes. Yeah. Because I think I'd read somewhere, maybe, I can't remember where I'd read, maybe it was on your website, that there was such a... Oh, yes. A, a show-stopping ending, if you like. It's based on true life, which is even more grueling, really, isn't it? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Um, I started to think, oh, what could this ending be? And I had one thing in mind, and it completely wasn't that. It wasn't that. Yeah, yeah. No, it was, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a remarkable piece of writing. It was a remarkable. And Julie uh, wrote... Is it's a monologue by a 13-year-old girl walking down a, you know, a canal in Manchester. And, you know, as, as a grown woman, she wrote um, exactly how a 13-year-old girl thinks and talks. And that's what you get. You know, it's quite a random, you know, 13-year-olds or this, this character. She's kind of all over the place on her thought processes. That was pretty much first script, first draft. But funnily enough, the other thing I learned was uh, don't listen to the experts because I'd sent it out for, I'd sent the script out to Channel 4 at the time, or Film 4, saying, you know, looking for funding. Uh, and they turned it down and said, it's not really a film, is it? It needs a beginning, a middle and an end. 
if you want to make a short film, we suggest you do comedies because that's really good start. And I was like, I don't want to do a comedy. So I had to get rid of what they said and thought, no, I'm going to do this. We will do this. And we did. There's so many examples of big institutions or big companies aren't willing to kind of Mm. take a risk. So many organizations or corporations, they started out very cutting edge. And then the bigger it gets, the more conservative it becomes because the audience gets bigger and broader and then you have to make everybody happy. So then can't target niches. I think television is changing now. I think they're they're getting their head around film. I think they're getting their head around that you you can target niches now and and you can be very uh, specific about your subject matter or your language or whatever. But yeah, it's always surprising how once you hit the corporations, you've got to go in quite beige. That whole playing it safe, it took me to a section in your book where you talked about, um, you, you drove past a field of all black sheep. Oh, yeah. And there's the one white sheep. And it's just that whole kind of thing of how things are kind of turned on their heads in a sense. Yeah, and just, it's funny to see something like that, but to notice it so strongly and for that image to stay with me for so long as well. And again, interestingly, you know, whether I see things differently or maybe you would have noticed it or other people would have done and other people wouldn't have noticed it. But when I came back, I had a chat with quite a few friends about what, what do you think the analogy is here? What, what for you? Because I couldn't get it out of my head you know, a load of black sheep with one white one. I mean, that for me is like, I could have stared at that for hours. And it was only after speaking to my sister, who is, uh, she's a poet and she, she sees the world in a very different way. She's very academic as well and very intellectual. There's actually loads of ways of interpreting that from a very Orwellian um, animal farm. Does suddenly the abnormal become normal? And did the rebels take over to, to, alert, to make the one that was standing up against them be the rebel? Um, or is it the yin that, it's, that was the, uh, that from the yin and yang that actually I was noticing um, a metaphor for my feminine side? Um, and it's quite interesting to, to, to see and... Um, interpret things. And I think if I hadn't been dyslexic or if I had had more confidence as a young girl, I would have loved to have done philosophy Um, because I find find all that really fascinating and interesting to, you know, to go in depth about stuff. But I just know I don't, I don't have the ability to, to read and understand and then explain in the way it should have been. I'm very much about, I see and I feel my interpretation and I'll run with that. So it's a very sort of, um, sort of personal creative interpretation that I, that I see that makes me make decisions, I think. Yeah, and one that maybe would be hard to fit into the kind of classic educational kind of system. Yeah, oh, absolutely, yeah. Yes, I've never been one for fitting in. 
I mean, I was never naughty, but it just, I've never, I've never fitted in. I mean, I follow rules. You know, I don't break the law. I'm very law abiding. Um, I don't push boundaries like that. I push my boundaries quite far. I like that there are boundaries in the world and I like to know where they stop um, in living life. But then outside that, when it's your own destiny, I'm happy to throw caution to the wind and uh, see what happens. Going back to the, the short journey that we talked about around the short film of, about a girl and winning a BAFTA and all that that journey entailed, was winning the BAFTA the highlight of that journey or was there a bigger highlight that people might not realise that's kind of sense of achievement in a different way. I think the feeling is, is pride. It's very much a high time, very much a, a high, high moment, because it doesn't get higher than being recognised by your peers and your industry and your family and friends for excelling in something that you've given up so much to do um, and to have created something that has made a difference. And I think what that does on the surface is makes, makes you feel very shiny. And with that comes the luxury of the red carpets and the dinners out and meeting Hollywood glitterati and, you know, getting the, the boxes of goodies before the bathroom, getting your hair done, the, you know, the dresses and the shoes. I wish I'd known you then. So that's great, but it's very short lived. It's a very short-lived sensation because uh, you don't live and breathe that every day. But what you do take, what I did take from it, was that sense of pride and achievement of, of doing something that I never thought I could do. Um, and that just, just gave me more confidence that my instinct on my decision-making to back a film that had been turned down by so many people, to, you know, to, to try and get finance from people that my friends in the industry said, well, that'll never work. I kind of realized that the, the quote, oh, I don't think that'll happen, I don't think that'll work, or are you sure? Are the three things I need to go, oh, this is a hat trick, this is a winner, I am off. So it, I think it just boosted confidence. And that is an equal high to the, the glamour and the shiny BAFTA and the, and the big nights out. Did that sense of achievement with About a Girl getting a BAFTA make it easier to go, actually, no, I've, I've done that now. I've, I've reached an incredible level that I'm really proud of. Now I've, I feel more content to choose a different direction, if you like. Well, I think from, from About a Girl and, the, and the, the BAFTA wins and the other short films that also did well, I just felt at the time, well, this is a definite stepping stone to now into the feature film world and to then, you know, start developing some, some scripts and focus on those. And that's where I quite, uh, that's the next hard stage because then you're challenged constantly in your creative decision-making of, am I backing the right horse here? Um, and, you know, I've backed the right horse before, but then is this the right horse to back? 
there was a book that I was developing and it was hard and, you know, it was hard for all of us. And there were, you know, tears and there were rewrites and there was all sorts going on and money being paid out, not in. Um, and it's like, am I, is, is it right? Have I lost my instinct? Is it the right thing to do? And even though it's worked once, you know, I hate the phrase and I never know if I believe in it or not. You know, you're only as good as your last job. I don't believe, I don't think that, but people do feel that. So I'm only as good. I was as only as good as about a girl, but if nothing else is coming out, I've never progressed from that. Uh, I, it was a big struggle because also during the stages of, of developing the feature film, no money was coming in um, and only money was going out. And I was starting to get physically hungry. And there are levels where you start going, oh, my God, you know, I don't know how long I can do this for. And, you know, you hear the stories of the, the penniless producers and directors and writers scraping out the last bean in the can to put it on their dry bagel. And, oh, you know, when they think they'll never eat again and they get, you know, the deal of all deals. Nobody's an overnight success. Nobody realizes that they've been eating beans for the last seven years and they're malnutritioned. But I was going down to scraping the beans out and thinking, I don't think I can do that. Um, and this is when, when I, I, I relaunched Silver Films. So then uh, I brought in a, a director as a business partner and we started earning money. And it kept the investors happy because if the company was earning money, they could take money out, even though they weren't investing in this part of the company. They, were still, they had still invested in Silver Films. And we started shooting cars. We got a an unusual niche to shoot cars around the world, Lexus and Toyota. And we got, it was amazing. It was a real luxury. And we had a new mantra that we would shoot cars to feed the bank and then continue making short films to feed the soul. And that balance felt okay. And I think that a lot of creatives need to remember that. They can't just be creative. They need to do something to feed the bank. Otherwise, their soul like, can dry up a bit. And it's working out that balance. I think it's, it's the constant readjustment as well, I suppose, of managing the highs within the lows to remember your direction and what you've got to sacrifice and what you can enjoy and you've got to temper that with business and earning money and but keep it all relevant and fun. Um, I mean, it's one hell of a, a journey and one hell of a struggle. You know, none of it's been easy. But the highs make you remember the fun bits only, <laughs> I think. They mould the rose-tinted glasses. What was, what was the catalyst to you deciding to go off on a bit of a road trip, a wonky road, road trip. And did the book idea come to mind as you were driving? Or was it a kind of a, a, a pre-idea that you had in mind before you set off? In a funny way, it's a little bit of all of it, which is a very undefined answer. I decided to leave my job um, to not go to a job. So I, I think I just had enough. You know, hit my early 50s, I thought, what's the point of spending so much money on anti-wrinkle cream when I'm getting so stressed that my wrinkles are getting greater? 
So I just don't want to get the stress anymore. I just need to breathe. I left the last job I was in and didn't really have a plan. I decided to ask myself as if I was on my deathbed. Uh, I asked my 80-year-old self. I'm obviously dying quite young, actually. I asked my future 80-year-old self, what shall I do? You know, I just imagined if I was lying there like a little old lady going, if only you had just what, what shall I do? And she said to me, I said to myself, you've got time on your hands, you've got money in the bank, you've got a 1970s VW camper van, you've got a bike, a camera and a cat. Go on a fucking road trip. And I, that, I gave myself the idea. It was really weird. I was like, wow, that's a great idea. So I thought, right, I'm going to go on a road trip. So then I just started planning the road trip and then working out where to go and what to pack and it took about a month to sort of plan and, and get ready. So when I was telling my friends, I'm going to go on a road trip, they were like, oh, are you going to film it? And I was like, oh, God, no, of course not. Um, so then uh, I had a meeting or a, I met up with, he was a work coach, actually, I've seen when I've had a, I've had a couple of breakdowns, work breakdowns. So before I went away, I met up with him and we had a little cup of coffee and a chat. And he said, are you going to write a book? I said, of course not. I don't write. He said, well, he said that rather quickly. And I said, okay. And I think, I must try to learn from people these days. I said, yes, I did say that rather quickly. He said, well, I tell you what, if you don't like writing, you have quite a nice turn of phrase when you chat. Why don't you record yourself on the road? And then you can transcribe it. I was like, all right. I said, well, I, I don't know what it will become, but um, I'll give it a go. I started the road trip. And uh, one thing that my dad had always got me to do when I was stuck in a decision, he'd always get me to write a who, what, why, where, when of that situation. Who am I? Uh, who do I want to be? What am I doing? Or what am I doing wrong? Or what do I want to do? Uh, how, how do I want to do it? How do I want to make it happen? You know, so all the words cross over, get it all out, and you write tons of it, and then you whittle it all down into a mission statement of what you want to do. So when I was on the road trip, I thought, well, I'll start with who. And I remember sitting on like day two of my road trip, and I got my laptop out, and I was like, blank page, terrifying. What the hell do you write? <laughs> I thought, well, I'll do what? Crickets. <laughs> Tumbleweed. Get away. <laughs> and so I started with who because it was easy and he's like well I'm 52 I'm single I've got no kids um who am I my blood group is be positive which is my attitude to life and I started writing and that never changed that's the first chapter of the book so I just started writing who I was and then I I never wrote anymore and then on the road trip all I did was I posted on Facebook uh, a couple of journeys about of what I was doing very short paragraphs and I was surprised by how people were liking it and the reaction they were getting and it was more a sort of it wasn't creative writing it was more like I'm here and I'm doing this I'm doing that and then when I got back um, I had dinner with my girls and uh, and they said really really enjoyed your writing and I was like I don't understand what you're talking about it's just it was just writing and they said, no, it was really engaging. Well, all right, I'll put the road trip together as a diary. 
So then I started writing the road trip out. And then I kind of got that together. And I was like, well, this isn't a book because it's too short. Nobody's just going to buy a book of um, somebody's diary. But actually, I think what might be quite interesting, I was thinking, is how did I get here in the first place? What made me choose to go on a road trip to then write this and have this adventure? What decisions have I made in my life? What turning points have I come to that have made me end up on this path, this wonky path? Okay. And I always remember the, um, the quote from uh, uh, Richard Jobs when he did his commencement speech at um, Stanford, when he's talking about joining the dots and you can only join the dots retrospectively. You can do, you can't, you can't join the dots looking forward, but you, you can make all these decisions or good things or bad things can happen in your life, but they all join up to take you somewhere. That's when I then went back and thought, right, maybe I'll tell a little story of how I got there. And then it just started when I was four. So then I wrote. And again, it, it sounds a bit funny, um, but I'd always heard how difficult writing was. And of course, I thought, well, of course, I can never write because it's one, it's so difficult. And two, I don't have that skill. Uh, and I have to say, I thoroughly enjoyed every single minute and found it rather easy, which is a very odd thing to say or to confess to. So I came back from my trip. I probably started writing in the beginning of September. And I'd finished the book by December. So it was only a few months. And then found an editor and worked with him for six months. And the first thing the editor did was to completely uh, reorder, make me reorder it. He said, it's way too linear. And they're quite brutal editors. They don't write anything. They just make you rewrite the whole thing. I thought, actually, I can get him to do a little bit of, you know. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Finish it off for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Can't think of an ending. What do you think? So he said, it's too linear. Uh, you started from the beginning. You've talked about your life. You've gone on a road trip. He said, readers and audience, like in a film, can be thrown all over time. So chuck them about. So then I had to reorder it. It was without doubt the road trip itself of having solitude for 40 days and 40 nights, unintentionally biblical, um, to then writing it all out was the best therapy I think I could ever have. I feel like I've mended. I think I'm a better person. It felt like it was a really cathartic journey for oh, you. Extraordinary. Reading it. Extraordinary. Which felt more cathartic, the, the road trip or the writing of the book after it? Or was, was it inseparable, I guess? I think they're inseparable, and I think both gave different things. I think when, when you're in the middle of an experience, you're not really conscious of that experience because you're having such a great time. And again, though, I wouldn't say there were difficult or dark or any dark moments that happened while I was away. Um, but... It is, it's your life. It became my life. I was on the road with a cat um, <laughs> and driving around on my own. I and mean, it was quite ludicrous, really. Um, but I was constantly meeting people and chatting to people and learning more and slowing down and relaxing and feeling at one with myself. I think the, 
the double luxury came in writing about it because also the writing about it happened during lockdown. So that whilst I was locked in uh, to enforced isolation as opposed to chosen isolation in a little, a little blue house on wheels that could drive wherever I wanted to, I was suddenly in a flat on my own with the cat, of course. But it allowed me to go to escape again on that journey. So I almost lived it twice. And I almost feel that if I hadn't been in isolation, I probably wouldn't have written it as well. Because now people read the book and go, I really felt like I was on that journey with you. And because of isolation and the future of isolation and travel and everything, I think there's something about the writing of it that, um, I hate the word zeitgeist, I'm going to use it. There's a bit of a zeitgeist in the fact that we're in a pandemic and we can't go anywhere. And that um, you can escape through reading. And I think this book might do that for a lot of people. And people have written to me, who I don't know, who have found the book and read it, and written to me. One guy in Ireland said, I'm macrophobic. I've not been out of the house for 20 years. He said, I've just been on a journey with you. It's amazing. And suddenly you go, oh my God, this is quite a responsibility to have written not just about the journey, but all the themes that I wrote about. My father's death, I was very honest about that. I know that I've caused a lot of people to cry um, because it's helped them or it's made them reframe the way they thought about death or thought about their parents' mortality, their own mortality. And I've heard all this from people, random, not random people, but people I don't know writing to me, telling me this. And suddenly for the first time, I've realized the power of words. I'm one of those people that went on that journey with you because I, I really enjoyed it. Got to say, the way that you mixed in the element of music, uh, so you felt like you were on a discovery as well. Yeah. There's some songs that you brought into the picture that that I didn't know, and when you talked about the um, the festival. Yes. Oh, yeah. I spent half an hour listening to Pete and Diesel. <laughs> What a phenomenal band they are. Oh, completely. On the road trip, that was the only date I had in mind. When I went on the road trip, I'm, I'm normally scheduled and budgeted to an inch of my life. So I've always, I always know what's going on. And on the road trip, I was like, I'm going to make sure I don't know what's going on. Just going to drive north. And that's all I'm going to do. I don't know where I'm going to stop or stay. It's just going to happen. Um... Again, it felt the right thing to do, and it was the right thing to do. But the only date that I was aiming for was Hebkelt, which was in, in um, Stornoway, in the most northern, almost northern tip of the Isle of Lewis, which is an Outer Hebridean island. I mean, even Outer Hebrides is such a romantic-sounding thing. Outer Mongolia, it's, it's the same thing to me. It's like, where the hell is it? How do you get there? And it was a land that I'd never really been to. So when I started realizing, I mean, Charlie, the van drives quite slowly. So I had to re recalculate and rework out how long it would take me to get to certain places. Um, I did get to Ullapool in time to get the ferry over, to get to Lewis, to get to Hebkelt and have three days 
on a Hebridean island in a Celtic festival. And I was in an overspill parking. It was, it was sold out. So I was in an overspill car park full of all old VW camper vans uh, and new camper vans and all that. And it was just like camper van, camper van haven and like a little community. And it was just brilliant. You, you mentioning uh, Charlie there. I, d- I did want to just read a little bit from your book because I just thought it, it was a lovely, um, a lovely analogy. Uh, hold on, let me just... With this freedom of thought, to dream of the future, came memories of the past. Thoughts swirled from hopes and dreams, to negative ones too. Baggage I had been carrying, problems I hadn't solved. People who had wronged me, people I had wronged. And, like the cars behind Charlie, I couldn't keep moving forward with so much lingering behind. So, I decided to pin each individual negative thought onto each car that passed me. I'd lower my window, rotate my arm to indicate for them to pass, and as they drove past, with smiles on their faces, with a wave or a beep, they disappeared with my negative thought in tow. They were none the wiser as to which piece of metaphorical baggage or shitty person I had pinned to them, but each one disappeared into the distance, never to return again. I thought that was genius. Well, apparently this is what NLP is all about, which I didn't realise. It's about reducing your uh, problem to such a small entity that you can get rid of it and never return to that problem. And I never realised that's what NLP was. But it just felt like such a natural process to just wave goodbye to these burdens and I could physically feel lighter. That was such a cathartic moment on the journey, and I really felt that as it was going. And because I knew that I was only three weeks, that happened within three weeks of just driving. Um, And I think there's something about being in the middle of nature that is so beautiful, and Scotland is just extraordinary to allow your, your eyes and your, your heart and your soul to digest what you're seeing, it, it has a, a really fundamental effect. It's like people putting your hands in the ground, you know, you get rooted to it. And uh, yeah, it was a really interesting analogy. And it's funny because I had, uh, when I went to Stornoway, I went to a Presbyterian church. At the end of the festival, they were, they were going to be singing psalm, psalm, psalms um, in Gaelic. And apparently it's a really unusual thing to hear. It's very sort of dark, mysterious and um, moody. There's no music to it, but it's, it, the, 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 the Gaelic poems are sung by the priest and then the congregation uh, repeat it in whatever tune he, he chooses to sing it in, and it, it like turns into a bit of a dirge. 
It's quite interesting. I thought I want to go to that. Anyway, the Reverend was, when he did his sermon, Reverend Kenneth, I thought was quite appropriate, Reverend Kenny. Um, he told a story, a parable about, you know, this guy that wears two bags, one on his front, one on his back. And in the front during the day, he puts all the good things that have happened during the day and all the good things that people have said to him and all the good things that he's done in the bag uh, on his front. And with the bag on his back, all the negative things that happened, he could just put in the bag on his back. And at nighttime, when he got home, he'd, get rid of, he'd take off the bag on his back, tie it up, squash it down and throw it away. Never look at it again. And then he'd take his front bag off and lay out all the good things that had happened that day and contemplate. And again, it's a very, very similar sermon, you know, from driving at the wheel of Charlie to have an open road with everything behind you and then letting it all go. Uh, very similar. I find that I get more ideas, more creative thoughts when I'm moving. When okay. I'm either walking or driving or on the train. Yes. Numerous people say that the active movement kind of helps the active creative thinking. I can imagine, yes. Um, did you find that because you're in such inspiring places, the different areas you, you visited in, in Scotland, did you find a different sense of thought when you were moving, when you were driving around with all the beautiful views versus sitting and contemplating and looking out over the lakes, the locks rather? I think the thing that I noticed the most was the fact that uh, I was able to clear my mind. And I could drive for hours and not realise or remember a single thought. And that was so liberating not to have this constant da -da 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 -da. Um, and because I didn't need to be creative, I wasn't searching for an answer whilst I was driving. I wasn't under pressure from myself to have to come up with a solution. So it was okay to uh, empty it all out and think of nothing. But I think you're absolutely right. I think, you know, when sitting stationary, I think sort of, gets everything falling down a bit. It doesn't really move anything around. And going for a walk, going for a run, or going for a bike ride, or breathing in in a different way, it, it, I think it, it, was, it must spark the brain with endorphins or something that does, that does do that. And I think movement will also do that as well, even if you're not physically moving. I'm sitting, but moving, you know, but being on a train, you can get that because everything is moving around you. Yeah, it's almost like it energises ideas. Yes. Whereas if you sit in one place, it allows the ideas to settle. Yeah, it germinates them, doesn't it? Now that you're back, what's next on the, on the wonky path? Well, um, I think when you open yourself up to the world and yourself, you're open to uh, serendipity and sort of magical things happening, or you're more aware of stuff and you're, you're more alert to that. So I'm going to cut back a little bit in that when I first posted, I was going to go to Scotland. An old friend of mine who I'd worked with years ago 
I'd produced some music videos for his band. He was the manager of Delays and I made a couple of music promos for him and we'd always kept in contact. He was always, you know, we always had a lot of fun together, but we didn't really work that way. We worked twice together and saw each other at gigs and he lived in the North and I lived down here. So, you know, we never really developed a friendship because we were so far apart. Um, but he just posted on Facebook, if you're going to Scotland, try and go to Noidart because it's an extraordinary place. I thought, I'll have a look at that. So I'd had to plan some of the route, especially because the ferries. And I had a ferry that was taking me from Sky, um, from the bottom of Sky, over back onto the mainland, which took me to a place called Malik. When you get to Malik, you can get a ferry to Noidart. Now, Noidart is one of the most remote peninsulas in the UK. So you can't drive to it. You, you can walk in for two days from the inside um, or you get a boat there for half an hour and you're on the peninsula. Um, and there's 100 people, 120 people that live there and it's just, you know, you're out in the wilds and it's beautiful. They've got three Munros that you can bag uh, or climb. And it was exceptional. So I was there for an afternoon. I, uh, I found a brewery straight away and got my little six pack of Noidart brew beer. You seem to have a, no a nose for breweries. Oh, breweries and distilleries. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and um, so when I left Noidart, I got in contact with Duncan and said, I've been there, I've done it. You know, I couldn't call you when I was there because there's no reception. And um, he said, well, now you're the only person, only other person apart from me that has been there. Uh, and it is a really interesting, magical place. Anyway, we sort of had a couple of texts going through the journey. And I said, well, why don't I meet up with you at the end of my trip? Because he lives in the Wirral. And we met up. So we met up and we just kind of rekindled our friendship. Uh, and we just got on absolutely brilliantly. And then that was last August. We now have two companies together. The main company that we set up is called the Noidart Retreat, which is a creative retreat, which is going to be held on Noidart, in Noidart, three times a year. Next year is for songwriters. Duncan comes from the music industry. Right. And it's something he's always wanted to do. And when we were talking about it, I was like, well, we could do it on Noidart and uh, let's just do it. And of course, the producer of me says, let's do it. And it happened, you know. And so now we had to cancel everything this year because of COVID, but we're relaunching next year with, uh, we have uh, specific writers in residence, award-winning writers in residence, who are going to mentor 11 writers every single time. And they come over for five days and they will write in the middle of nowhere. They're going to cut out all the noise. They'll get the little boat over. They'll live in a house together for a week. And uh, there's a concert at the end of each retreat in the Noidart Community Hall. And uh, bookings are now open. And yeah, places are going. So it's, it's interesting and exciting to know that people are more hopeful for next year going, yeah. yes, I want to get out. I want to do something. I want to be creative again and be at one with my creativity and go somewhere and have an adventure within the UK. So that's so exciting. So we've got the website. We've got all the bits and pieces that go with it. We've created a whole company. And it's just me and him. And again, we're making it up as we go along because we're not, we're not really marketeers. You know, he's a 
he was a ma- he's a band manager and tour manager and producer in the music world. And right. I, from my world of, of film and events and producing. So together, we work very well. Um, so that's what we're working on at the moment. But then out of that, there is a project that we're working, we're actually developing at the moment, which is uh, a three-part TV program, a seven-part podcast, and a soundtrack, which is all to do with the power of songwriting, and we're basing it all from Noidart, um, through songwriting therapy, working with survivors of different traumas, and bringing them together with um, singer-songwriters so they can work with the writers to create songs to help them voice. Deal with the trauma. And deal with the trauma. But hopefully we'll be filming that next year. Wow. Yeah. I mean, that's just extraordinary. Yeah, that's so exciting. When you say you're bringing together writers, is it just songwriters that you're bringing together or writers from all different fields of writing just songwriters so that the end goal is that each survivor will have written a song with a songwriter and they will perform the song acoustically in the community center for the end of program concert with family and friends and everything and um and then we'll record all those songs in a studio as well well yeah that sounds exciting and fascinating yeah. and everything in between yeah and it, it's exciting because neither of us have done something like that before um again it feels right it feels like the right time to tell these stories that will have a story of hope attached to the, the, the trauma because there's lots of different levels of trauma and people deal with trauma differently and it doesn't have to be the most outrageously horrific thing for someone to get PTSD. Um, So we're trying to find a level of uh, survivors that a lot of people can connect with and learn from and get hope from as well. Yeah. And be inspired by to to, to move forward. Yeah. Yeah. Well. And then I guess on top of that, I'm realizing I might have to write another book. When you say you might have to, what? Well, I realise that self-publishing is all well and good because I'm self-published, not with a uh, traditional publisher. And there's, you know, there's two sides to the coin and each is good and bad. Well, there's two factors, really. One, to be able to turn it into any form of proper income. You can't just write one book and hope it's going to do it. But the other thing, a bit like tattoos, writing is addictive. And I think I'm ready to, to, to get something else out now. So I, uh, I'm starting. Funnily enough, last night, I was lying in bed at half 11 at night. I couldn't sleep. So I got up and I opened the laptop. And I put chapter one and I wrote three paragraphs. And I've just, just started getting the ideas going of what the next one could be. Don't know where it's going to go yet, though. If you've got past that... Um... Blank page. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Horrific blank page. Yes. If there was one kind of phrase that you kept in mind to kind of keep you going, and because I'm sure 
even though you're not a procrastinator, you know, you, you must have, you can't be ultra positive and ultra productive every single no. day. No. You know, you must have your moments. Um, do you have like something that kind of buys you along? I don't think there is actually. I've got quotes in my life that I like. I like the, the Louis Pasteur, um, chance favours a prepared mind. Because I don't believe in luck. I've worked hard for all of this. You know, these are my, my decisions and me going out there and pushing myself into that panic zone and out of the comfort zone has given me these opportunities. So, you know, chance favours a prepared mind. And to be, to have a prepared mind, you've got to push yourself out there and get on with it, you know. I think I also like, it's probably from the art of war or something um, from my dad, was um, they'll never divine the roots of my strategy by aping my tactics. What I always took from that, and whether it's I've misinterpreted it or what, it doesn't matter because it's how I've taken it, is that, you know, it's my individualism and my creativity and my passion which has driven me to create stuff. And then it's just the mechanics of stuff, of the way I've, and the logistics of how I've delivered it that makes me unique. And nobody can copy what I've done because someone else can go on a road trip for six weeks and go on exactly the same path, but they'll get a different journey, but they won't know why I did it or what motivated me to do it. And it's because of me that I met those people and made that left turn, right turn or whatever it was. Uh, So that helps me remember my individuality, especially when I'm feeling a bit, I think the hardest feeling I ever get in life is that I don't fit in. And why am I a bit odd and why am I a bit different? And I just need to celebrate the fact that being different is okay. And it's actually being different is better than being the same as everybody else. But by being different, you can be a lot more challenged uh, in how you feel about yourself and how other people feel about you as well. And there is that sort of satellite mothership thing that I still have of, do I actually want to be on the mothership? Well, no, not really. I think I'm happy to stay in the satellite and dip in every now and then to the mothership life but come out and just be me and keep that individuality i think that's a a fantastic point to kind of bring bring this episode to a close on it's uh i've really enjoyed it it's been it's been fabulous yeah, yeah, yeah so. well thank you so much and thank you I'm very honored the honor is literally <laughs> all, all mine not really <laughs> no it it has been fantastic Um, yeah thank you very much indeed and thank you for listening you can find more about Janie including her book and the No Doubt Retreat on her website at janiedenordwall.com and you can find more episodes from this podcast at anthonystoker.com until next time